Amen. It's words like that that echo in my heart every time we sing them. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind, bind my wandering heart to thee. People of God, this morning we gather that God might bind our wandering hearts to him and to each other. Amen? Why don't you take a seat? If you don't know me, my name is Eric Solomon, and I'm one of the preaching pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church. And probably the reason that you don't know me is that Rob and Hannibal have kept me hidden away at TVC. Your brothers and sisters in Christ up in Streamwood greet you and are grateful to call you familia across zip codes. And I want to say welcome not just to you who are here, but if you are new here, we're really grateful that you're here with us. We're a community of broken people telling other broken people where to find the only one that can fix us, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And if you're joining us online, we also want to say we're so glad you're with us online. We can't wait for the day when we can all gather in the same place together. And, And what a glorious day that would be. And so we are grateful you're here with us in this particular way. And we long for the day when it will be different. The last thing I want to say is, uh, Sarah already mentioned it, but I want to also say welcome to the kids that are with us this morning. This is a a Family Life Sunday, and I'm a a father of two little ones, and so I want to tell every parent in here, if you brought little ones into this space and they make noise, please don't take them out. There's a beautiful thing about hearing the noise of children among the family of God. It means that there's life among us, amen? Amen. And so on my account, I mean, if you want to, that's okay. I'm not going to shame you for taking them out of the, the room, but if you, on my account, don't take them out. We love being together as a family. Now, together as this family, we also get the chance across multiple locations to celebrate what God is doing in and among us. From what we just sang, reminding each other of the gospel, to how we have been praying and and, and we even reading from God's word, we gather together to remember, to celebrate, to rejoice in and reflect upon the gospel of Jesus Christ that made us his people in the first place. And so in the, this morning, as we worship, one of the, the passages that I wanted to share with you describes our worship like this. It calls God in Psalm 96.7 to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. That's what we've done together as God's people. We have ascribed, we have attributed, given the credit to God for his glory, for what he has done in and among us. And now we step into another rhythm where we get to do the same thing. Another rhythm of worship, the rhythm of giving to God. And so I want us to draw our attention to the very next verse in Psalm 96, which says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering, and come into his courts. People of God, worship is singing. Worship is the public reading of God's word. Worship is participating in the preaching of God's word. And yes, worship is even demonstrating our dependence upon, trust in, and gratitude to God through giving. And so this morning, I want to invite you to enter into that rhythm of worship, of giving. Here in our particular context, you can do that by going to wheatonbible.org slash give or even dropping your offering back off in the, in the back, in the boxes in the back as you leave. But, but all of that is done not in the context of you have to uh, give and get some ROI back from God, like you're funding some things, but because you are giving in gratitude to God. And even in your giving, you are demonstrating your dependence upon God, saying, God, you are the one who gave this to me in the first place. And so I give it to you in worship trusting that you will use it for your purposes. With that in mind, would you pray that God would do that together among us? Would you pray with me? King of all creation, king over every nation, this morning we come before you in gratitude, thanking you for your hand in history. Your word says that you are the kind of God who guides, establishes, raises, and yes, even tears down nations. And so we are grateful on this 4th of July for the the, the civic and religious freedoms that we have in this particular country. We are grateful for all of those who have made the ultimate sacrifice, who have given up their lives that we might live in peace and freedom. And in our gratitude, we also recognize that this freedom is but a picture of the ultimate freedom that we have in Christ. That we are not able to live in righteousness and worship God with clean hearts because of the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But Lord, even on today, we do pray for the leaders that you have established in this country, that you would give them wisdom, that they might lead in honesty and integrity and fairness, that you would give everyone at every level of government a desire to promote justice and to live in truth. 
the truth of the truth that your gospel testifies to, the truth that this morning we are grateful for, your grace. First Peter 2.9 tells us that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And so we ask this morning that you would continue to do that kind of calling all over your, the world through your missionaries. Specifically this morning, we pray for your work through Josh and Melanie as they return to the mission field in a few weeks. We pray for their family, especially the little ones as they transition back to where they are serving. Pray that you would give them wisdom and compassion as they introduce people to the gospel, as they, they serve among refugees with the love of Jesus. And yes, Lord, even as we pray for them, we pray for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world, that you would strengthen them and encourage them this morning, however they are worshiping. And Lord, thinking globally, we also think locally. We pray for our local church here in West Chicago, up in Streamwood, through Iglesia de Pueblo, that you might make us outpost of new creation life where you have placed us. This morning, would you position us under the authority and safety of your word that we might live lives that are centered on Jesus and his gospel. We ask all of these things in the name of that Jesus who saved us. Amen. Well, at this time, I want to invite two of God's missionaries that we've had the privilege of sending from our church family. Josh and Melanie are going to share their Jonah story uh, from our church family as both a celebration and a challenge as we step into Jonah. Morning, everyone. My name is uh, Josh Zimmerman. This is my wife, Melanie. We've been sent by Wheaton Bible Church since 2012 with Greater Europe Mission. Um, been serving uh, Muslim and refugee peoples in Europe, and we were asked to share just a brief testimony this morning about responding to God's call. Yeah, I'm really excited that Wheaton Bible Church is studying Jonah because that was where my missionary journey began almost 10 years ago when we were going through Priscilla Shirer's Jonah study in Place for You. Some of you might have done that study back in the day. And I was really impacted by what she shared in her study about the idea of the interrupted life and what a privilege it is to be interrupted by God, that when we were pursuing our own plans, God interrupts us and guides us along his plans. And, we've re and she talks too about how that interrupted life is a meaningful life, and it's a significant life. And we've really seen that in our missions journey. Um, it's been about nine years, and we've seen how God has repeatedly interrupted us in unexpected ways, but how that has led to great blessing and, um, and significance. One of the biggest ways that we saw that was in 2016, we were living in London. We had just gotten settled there and really starting to enjoy the city, really enjoying the ministry there and seeing a lot of new things. When all of a sudden God put in front of us this urgent need for workers in the harvest um, to go and serve refugees who were living on this little unknown island called Lesvos off the coast of Turkey. There were thousands and thousands of refugees pouring in there and God just showed us there is work to be done here and you need to go. And at first we were pretty firm, no thank you, and just asking God, could you send anybody other than us? And as we looked around, we really saw there was nobody else that was going and needed to be us. God wanted it to be us. And that was really hard and really scary. Just a lot of unknowns, a lot of questions, and um, we had to step forth in faith into that unknown. And as we were making the decision throughout the discernment process, I remember very clearly in prayer and in reflection, it was like a question that kept being asked us by God was, do you trust me? This was something that was just over and over again. Josh, do you trust me that I love your wife more than you do? Do you trust me that I care about your family's future and stability more than you do? And I think ultimately, do you trust me that I care about your good and I'm providing something that's good for you that's better than a good that you can contrive on your own? And I think that was something for me that really uh, it transformed my way of thinking to say, okay, if I truly believe that God is good and he's not out for my ruin, he's not out for my destruction, but he's for my good, that frees me up, if we can say it that way, to say yes when he puts something in front of us because we know it's not gonna lead to our harm. So more than that though, our faith grows exponentially. And seeing that in our own lives as we step forward in faith to this call that God was putting forward before us, just to say, yes, simply, our faith grew as we entered into those experiences. And while we were in these experiences, we saw it was like the, the verse um, that kept coming to mind was when Jesus was saying, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. 
and just feeling full spiritually to the uttermost in all situations because we were doing the work that God had prepared for us. The less glamorous part of it is stepping forward in faith actually puts you in positions that God is going to reprove the sinful areas in your life that are unknown until you step forward. And so seeing that play out in our life and growing in this reproving process was something that was great, but also being able to see firsthand the things that God wants to do in the world, and he chooses to use us, and all he's waiting for us is to say, okay. Seeing people from many uh, country backgrounds that have been closed for centuries to the gospel, hundreds of them coming to faith and being baptized, God providing miraculous things for our needs. So as we prepare to go back to the mission field in about eight days, um, stepping forward in faith to things that we know that God has prepared for us to do, just want to encourage you also this morning to think about what is God calling you into? What are the interruptions? What has God placed in front of you that he's asking you to step into? Maybe it's moving overseas, but maybe it's simply just having a spiritual conversation with someone that God has laid on your heart. So I just want to encourage you to walk into that. Thanks. The storm raged on, threatening to destroy the boat while Jonah ran away from God's mission. The mariners asked Jonah why the storm had come upon them. Jonah told them that he was running away from God's mission, and they were furious with him and asked, What can we do to calm the seas? Jonah told them, Throw me into the sea, and the storm will calm. Nervously, they listened and threw Jonah into the water. The storm calmed, and the men rejoiced and praised God. As they drifted from Jonah, a great fish came to swallow him up. Jonah would stay there for three days and three nights. Thank you again, Josh and Melanie, for sharing your story and not just encouraging us, but challenging us with what obedience might look like even in the most difficult of situations. This morning, we continue a story of encouragement and challenge. We continue our, our one-story summer series, Jesus and Jonah, entering into the story of someone who did not obey God's call, who did not run to the people that the Lord called him to. And even in that story, Jonah, even unwittingly, points to Jesus, the story of the one who did obey God's call and ran to the people to which God called him. This morning, we searched the scriptures. We searched the, the, the whole Bible in general and the book of Jonah in specific to be pointed to Jesus, the Savior. Jonah is the story uh, that is often crowded out by a miraculous fish, a miracle fish that we either dismiss as a fantastical children's story or, or use to hammer a nail in the coffin of a faith that tries to tell us that a serpent can tempt a donkey can talk, and yes, now a fish can save. Unfortunately, we are so distracted with the marine research that it, based on this one scene in the book of Jonah that we miss the mighty hand of God. And this morning, in order not to miss this mighty hand of God, we are going to work through that story in that first chapter, all the way into that miraculous fish, but all along the way, we are going to focus on that miracle-working God. A God who works miracles not just to save his prophet gone rogue, but to save a people gone rogue. Like Rob said last week, we are all Jonah. In different ways, at different times in our lives, we wrestle with God, what it truly means that God is consistently compassionate, consistently gracious to all kinds of rebels. We all run, and we all need a savior who did not run. We all need someone who obeyed when we couldn't. We all need this story in the book of Jonah to point us to Jesus. So, without further ado, like we do every Sunday, I want us to dive into the scriptures, position ourselves under the authority of God by trusting him to work in us by his spirit. Our text this morning is Jonah 1, 5 through 17, so you can go ahead and turn there, and while you're doing that, I'll say, if you are new to the Bible, two things. I'm really glad you're here. Like I said earlier, we're just broken people pointing people to Jesus. But two, the book of Jonah is a tiny book about two-thirds of the way into the Bible. No worries if you can't even find it. No shame in using a table of contents. Even if you're not so new to the Bible, it's okay. If you're online with us, I would also encourage you to open up your Bible so you can read together. And like we do every Sunday, I would like us to stand if you're able so we can read from God's word from Jonah 1. 
People of God, hear God's word from Jonah 1, 5 through 17. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe, maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What what kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is God's word. You may be seated. Categories and eyes, storm surges and wind speed. Growing up in Miami, Florida, I wasn't worried about inches of snow. I was always looking at inches of rain, wind speed, and the different categories of hurricane. You see, we didn't have snow days where I come from. We had hurricane days. Days where we were spent trying to hope that the power did not go out as we counted down the minutes for the eye of the storm to arrive. A, a, a moment when everything would get like creepy quiet. Like everything had been turned off all of a sudden. But that quiet could actually be pretty deceptive because the eye of the storm doesn't last forever. Eventually, the storm whips back around and starts up again. This morning, we step back onto the deck of a ship that is caught up in the middle of a hurricane of God-like proportions, and, and by the end of the text this morning, the hurricane will be quiet, not temporarily like the eye of the storm, but permanently because of the hand of God. A calm that leaves us wondering, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? But right now, as we step into the beginning of our text, the hurricane is raging. The sea is still violent, and we are on the deck of a ship that is threatening to break up, trying to find something, anything to hold on to. And what I want to say this morning is the thing that I think this text gives us to hold on to is this truth about God. Better yet, this call for God. For us to trust the God who does the unthinkable on purpose. This is what I believe is the anchor point of our text this morning. Trust the God who does the unthinkable on purpose. And in order to trust this God, we have to see this God as he really is, as he has revealed himself to be in his word. And so I think this text actually reveals four core realities about this God we are being called to trust. Those four core realities are that he is the God who notices. He is the God who made the sea and the dry land. He is the God who does as he pleases. And he is the God who provides. And so as we go through this story, this ship that feels more like a roller coaster right now than some kind of sunset cruise for Jonah, as the waves crash and we hear the echoes of God's mercy in this storm, I want you to be on the lookout for the God who notices, the God who made the sea and the dry land, the God who does as he pleases, and the God who provides, because underneath it all is this call to trust this God who does the unthinkable on purpose. Well, let me get to that first core reality then. God is this God who notices. If you've been tracking with the story, you realize that he is not a God who is disconnected or or detached from his image bearers. The beginning of Jonah actually starts with God calling Jonah to preach against Ninevites. The text tells us why. Because 
The wickedness of the Ninevites has risen up before him. In other words, God has noticed them. He noticed and he sent his prophet them to them to warn them, to warn them to repent. But that prophet decided to go in the opposite direction, decided to run from the call of God. And if we're tracking the story, we see that God was not far behind. Enter hurricane mercy. The text starts in verse 5. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. They threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. As we're on the deck of the ship, we look around, we're holding onto this guardrail, we're wiping our eyes from all the rain that is coming down and we see exactly the opposite of what we expect to see. Hardened sailors with terror in their lungs, pleading with the heavens for help. Caught in the crossfire of God's mercy, these sailors have noticed that there's something different about this storm. This is not just any storm that we're in. This is some kind of God-like storm, and so they send up a flare to their idols, and they even start to help their idols move their salvation along by emptying the cargo hold of the ship, and, and in between their have mercies and please save us, they get interrupted by something, or, or better yet, someone, that they trip over in the cargo hold. The text tells us Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Their mystery passenger who had joined them last minute, out of breath, and had had paid in cash, has now crashed at the bottom of this ship, and had, in the middle of a hurricane, is asleep. Spiritual numbness in this moment has rendered Jonah unconscious. Whatever happened in his head and heart that brought him down to Joppa, that brought him down into the ship and down into this cargo hold, however he had convinced himself that what he was doing was right when he was disobeying God, Jonah was now comatose in his rebellion. He was comatose and not even extreme danger could wake him. Shaking Jonah awake, the captain of the ship actually comes to Jonah and and yells at him, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. What is wrong with you? Jonah like rubs his eyes trying to undo the numbness on his arm. You know when you sleep on your side a little bit wrong and you wake up and he's trying to figure out if what he's seeing is a dream or or maybe a nightmare. I mean, he's hearing a voice that sounds like the voice of God just a few days earlier, the, the voice that haunted him to sleep. Get up. Only this time it's not get up and go. It's get up and call. Get up and call on your God. How ironic that a Gentile captain is pointing God's prophet back to God when it should be the exact opposite. Pray, man. This captain, hearing the names of every god his crew has pledged their allegiance to, this captain demands Jonah join them in their, their, their new game of God roulette, their desperate game of God roulette. Hopefully we're going to hit the right God and he will save us. Because, because we don't stand a chance as things stand right now. Maybe your God, Jonah, will notice us so that we don't die out here. The captain's demand echoes here because this is precisely what got Jonah in trouble in the first place. God took notice of Gentiles so that they might not perish and he sent Jonah to preach. And yet Jonah refused. And now his disobedience is about to cost the lives of the entire ship. This captain is speaking more than he knows. His maybe is a certainty because without realizing it, he is talking to the the only guy on this ship that knows what in the world is going on. And he's asking this guy to pray to the only God that can make any of it stop. He's talking to the God who notices. The God who noticed Nineveh, who will notice them and will save them later in the story, even if it's not how they think they will be saved. Trust the God who notices and does the unthinkable on purpose. The God who is merciful enough to send a storm that stops us on our path to disobedience. Who notices us in our suffering even and especially when it is self-inflicted. He loves us too much to leave us in it. Who sent not just another prophet, but did the unthinkable and sent his very son to us to save us. The God who notices and does the unthinkable on purpose 
not as some emotionally charged reaction to a hurricane of a situation, but who in his wisdom, love, mercy, and grace decided to do the unthinkable and die for us. Trust the God who does the unthinkable on purpose. The reason we can trust this God is not just because he notices, not just because he cares, but because he is the only one who has the power to act on that. We trust the God who does the unthinkable on purpose because he can do the unthinkable. Because he is the God who made the sea and the dry land. This is my second point. In other words, he is the all-powerful creator God who is sovereign over everything. It is this God that the captain unknowingly calls Jonah to pray to. And yet this scene does take an unexpected turn in our story. You notice that Jonah is being called to act, to pray. And yet the next verse shows that Jonah did not act yet. He is not praying yet. Look at verse 7. The sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. We have to remember in the story that at this point the sailors have no idea what's going on. You and I know because we're good readers of the Bible. Jonah knows because he's the only one that actually knows the whole story. He's the one who ran at the beginning. But they have no idea. So they, do, they try to figure it out by doing what they know how to do. They, they cast lots. And as I was trying to figure out a way to explain lots and not go into all of the details, I remember there's this, this game I used to play when I, when I played basketball uh, in a schoolyard. Now, I might not look like I play basketball. I'll forgive you for thinking that. But when I played basketball at a place that didn't have referees, where there were no calls that could be made, there was a game we would play when people would get in what I would call a, um, a friendly disagreement. It's a game we would call Ball Never Lies. And it goes like this, if you and I are disagreeing about a call, well, since I'm the one that's disagreeing at the beginning, I gotta go to the three-point line and I gotta shoot. If I make the shot, then the basketball gods have smiled on me and have decided that I am right. If I miss the shot, well, the basketball gods have decided that I am not correct in my perception of the situation. Ball never lies. Lots is an ancient way of playing ball never lies of taking some random act and trusting the gods to guide it, looking for the will of the gods through a game of chance. But there's a passage in scripture that tells us what is really happening behind the scenes. Proverbs 16.33 says it like this, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. People of God, we know that nothing is left up to chance, that God is in control of everything, even a game of lots, and that in this moment, this is no random eeny, meeny, miny, mo that is being played, that God very purposely, on purpose, has singled out Jonah to these sailors. The lots are cast, the wind is whipping the sails, the rain is pounding the deck, and the boat is threatening to tear itself apart, and Jonah has drawn the short straw. And in the middle of a hurricane, these sailors load this moment with buckshot and they ask question after question. They, they, they fill this space with the anxiety and panic and, and investigation. And the first question they ask in verse 8 says, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? Probably the most important question they ask. After all, they're trying to figure out what is going on. Why is this happening to us? And here they give Jonah an opportunity to explain himself. Remember, the lot still hasn't explained what's happening. It's only pointed them in the right direction. They still don't know what's going on. Did they insult Jonah? Are, are they aiding and abetting some kind of criminal? Have they displeased some new God that they know nothing about? Who is responsible? And in this moment, this question, the reality of this question is that Jonah's sin did not stay as Jonah's sin. Jonah's sin started to endanger everyone around him. To say it another way, people of God, this is how sin works. Sin does not just affect us. It affects everyone around us. There is no such thing as a private sin. Our sin echoes across generations and within the rooms of our home. Our sin makes its way up the block to our neighbors and across the cubicle to our coworkers. Our sin spreads in our life groups and jumps rows in our worship center because sin is more like radiation than a bullet. Sin contaminates everything that it touches. Its aim is to kill. And because God loves us too much, God will expose that sin. 
He will expose that sin. He, he loves us too much. He loves the people around us too much to let our sins stay in the dark. Better yet, easier to say, he loves us too much to let us stay in the dark with our sin. And so he calls us out of spiritual numbness into spiritual life. But, but he does this in the most unthinkable way possible. He does it by mercy. That's why I keep talking about Jesus. The mercy of Jesus Christ is what took on the contamination of sin, of our sin, and died for us with that contamination that we might be freed, that we might be clean, that we might be able to be with God in true life again. Who is responsible? I am. You are. And yet he took it because he loves us. But that's only the first question that hits Jonah. There are four more questions that try to get at what's happening, to get at the sin that's underlying, because these sailors still have no idea what's going on, and they, they are as rapid as I've been reading them. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? These four questions are fundamental questions of identity. Jonah, who are you? But I want you to remember the context of this question. Again, they're still trying to figure out which God is responsible for this sin. What is, what is happening around us? At this time, people worshiped all kinds of God, gods. They, they worshiped personal gods. They worshiped family gods. They worshiped national gods. Come to think of it, it's not so different from our time today. We just have different language. But it means that their who are you is their attempt to figure out whose are you. The ancients knew what sometimes we forget, that we become what we worship. That's the title of a book by New Testament scholar Greg Beale where he talks about idols and, and the true worship of God and he has this very potent phrase in there. He says, what people revere, they resemble either for ruin or for restoration. Like any good preacher, I like that quote because it has a bunch of alliteration in it. But let me tell you what he's trying to say. At our core, our identity is molded by Whatever we believe can save us. Whatever we believe can define us, can tell us who we are, whoever we pledge our allegiance to. The questions of these sailors, they confront Jonah and they confront us. Whose are you? And then for the first time in our story, Jonah opens his mouth. Before we get to what Jonah says, I do want to say, listen, we are made in the image of God. We were also made to worship God, which means that the combination of those two truths mean that our identity is fundamentally tied to who we worship, to what we worship. And that relationship goes both ways. Our worship shapes our identity, and our identity reveals our worship. In other words, whose you are determines who you are, and who you are shows everyone whose you are. And so when Jonah answers, I want you to pay very close attention to what he says. Look at verse 9. I am a Hebrew. If you didn't catch that, the first question that Jonah decides to answer is the last question that they asked. Jonah has decided here in his moment of investigation to start from the bottom up. In other words, he has what I would call disordered priorities. He has identified himself first and foremost by something other than God. For Jonah, his national and racial affiliation has made its way to the top of his list. And that is what he leads with. And it actually becomes another breadcrumb on the way to finding out the answer of why Jonah ran in the first place. Because see, if we're tracking the story of Jonah, we don't actually know why Jonah ran at the beginning of the book. We don't find out that reason until Jonah chapter four. But here, we get a clue as to what's happening in the heart of Jonah, a heart that is tied to his country before it is tied to his God. It was easy to run from an assignment given by that God to go to another country, an assignment that left the chance open that God would forgive these Ninevites, Israel's enemies, leaving God's people open to danger. God, your military strategy is all wrong. I don't think you understand how the world works. And in this moment, Jonah has what apparently is a disbelief in the goodness of God, and it fuels his escape. I am a Hebrew. The question for us this morning is what will we put in our first place? 
Is it our career? I am a pastor. Is it our family? I am a Solomon. Solomons do things in a particular way. Is it, is it my ethnicity? I am Latino. That's why I'm always late to everything. Amen. Is it my country? I am an American. All of those things are good and important priorities. The problem is not to make them priorities. The problem is to make them the wrong priority. The problem is to take a good and make it into a God and try to make God into just another good on your list. Who are you? I am a Hebrew, Jonah says. Now, I won't bash Jonah too hard because the next words out of his mouth are actually good. I worship the Lord. That word that's translated for worship is actually the word that's translated as fear. I fear the Lord. But unfortunately for Jonah, as we read, those words feel a little flat. I mean, really, Jonah? How much do you fear the God of heaven? the God who made the sea that is ranging around this boat right now. I mean, the one who is described in Psalm 95 as the great God, the great king above all gods. The one who owns the sea because he made it. The one who formed the dry land. Really, really, Jonah, you know what? Your actions are speaking so loudly, I don't think I can hear what you're saying. Jonah clearly admits the power and sovereignty of God in this moment. And yet his words don't seem to have the conviction we would expect from a prophet of God. There are powerful words that are emptied of their meaning by his disobedience. And yet, the text shows us that they are still not emptied of their power. Look at the next verse, verse 10. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? Because these sailors, they knew that he was running away from the Lord. Jonah had already told them so. The irony is that the sailors who just find out about this God of heaven fear him a lot more than the guy that's supposedly known him all his life. Jonah is paying lip service. These sailors actually fear God. And all that escapes the terror that has gripped their throat in this moment is what have you done? And yet the God who has noticed Nineveh has also noticed these sailors. The God who made the sea is working not just to save his rebellious prophet, but to save these sailors that he had made in his image. We trust the God who made everything when he does the unthinkable because we trust that he has a purpose in it, even and especially when we can't figure out what that purpose is. When we don't know why that storm is Here, we don't fully understand it. We trust the God who does the unthinkable on purpose, not only because he will do the unthinkable and notice undeserving sinners and save them from wrath with mercy, but because as the creator of everything, he can do the unthinkable. And as creator, this God, unlike impotent idols that are not able to rescue, delights in saving his image bearers, even if it's not always how we want it or how we think we need it which forms my third point. This is the God who does as he pleases. The terror of these uh, sailors is interrupted by the hurricane that continues to whip around the ship. The volume seems to have turned to 11 and they turn to Jonah. What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Well, Jonah's answer here is as confusing as his creed in verse nine. Look at the text in verse 12. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he says. It'll become calm, for I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Have you noticed that there's something conspicuously absent from the story? Jonah has yet to pray. Jonah has yet to repent. Jonah has yet to say anything to the God that he supposedly serves, worships, fears, in the face of sailors who have done nothing but talk to their gods. And even in this answer, what to do, he doesn't say anything about God to them. His focus is on them. He takes responsibility. It's my fault. And he recognizes what he's done to them. It's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. But for all of this nobility, we have to see that Jonah is still running from God. I mean, look at what he tells them to do, right? Instead of jumping himself, 
praying to the God that apparently can save, or repenting, Jonah tries to get these sailors to be complicit in his murder. And at first, the sailors actually refuse. They're so shocked by what he says. The text says in verse 13, instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Shocked, shocked by what this man of God has just told them to do, these sailors try to fix the problem another way. After all, how do they know if this runaway prophet really knows the right way to appease his God? I mean, he is running away from the God that apparently made everything. How smart can he be? But as we all find out one way or another, you can't turn back time. There's no rowing back to land. Jonah has disobeyed, and the sailors try as hard as they might, cannot undo Jonah's sin. On your own, there are no do-overs. The wages of sin is death. And so filled with their inability to return, these sailors turn and pray. They fill the prayerless silence of Jonah with their own pleas for mercy. Not to their idols, their powerless gods, but to the only true God. Notice how they pray. Please, Lord. I don't know if you know this. Whenever you step into the Bible and you see all caps for Lord, that is not just the name Lord, that is actually the personal name of God himself, Yahweh, in the mouth and on the lips of these sailors who up until this point don't have names. They're blank canvases except for the fact that we know they pursue idols. And now they're calling to Yahweh. Please, Yahweh, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Afraid that they're going to be somehow implicated in his death, the sailors essentially say, we're about to do what, you, what, what we think you want us to do. Please be merciful to us. We recognize your power. You are the one who does as he pleases. And this phrase is a really important one in the text. It shows up in a bunch of places in the Bible for your sake and, and make sure that I actually get to Iglesia de Pueblo on time. I'm just going to give you one of them. Psalm 115, 3 through 4 says this, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him but their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. Everywhere this phrase, the Lord does as he pleases, shows up in the Bible, God is contrasted with the idols who are not able to do as they please because they are just made by human hands. The one who does whatever he pleases, unlike idols who are unable to save, incapable of action, these sailors have stumbled upon, been introduced to the God who is able to save them, and he reveals the powerlessness of their idols and they see it. Out of the options that the sailors, uh, out of options, the sailors take Jonah, they throw him overboard, and it turns out that their god roulette supposedly landed on the right god because the raging sea grows calm. The one who does as he pleases did what it pleased him to do. He pursued his runaway prophet and revealed himself to sailors that were made in his image. And the immediate nature of the hurricane disappearance marks the sailors if they feared God before, the text says that they greatly feared the Lord. They offer sacrifices to this God. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The God who does as he pleases was pleased not just to punish his prophet, but to reveal himself to people outside of Israel. One theologian talks about it like this. He calls Jonah's activity in this scene his anti-missionary activity. And the irony of it all is that Jonah in his anti-missionary activity is used by God to be a missionary of God's mercy to these foreigners, these sailors who are made in God's image. Trust the God who does the unthinkable on purpose. The God who is pleased to save rebel sailors in the unexpected use of a rebel prophet to save Jonah and yes, I say, save Jonah in the unexpected use of the sea. Save because the God who notices, the God who made the seas and the dry land, the God who does as he pleases, has not forgotten Jonah. God notices Jonah in the waves, sinking in the sea he has made, and he is pleased not in Jonah's death, but in Jonah's transformation. And here's my fourth and final point. He is the God who provides for this transformation in the most unexpected way. Verse 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. 
The silence of the storm has become the silence of the deep as we plunge beneath the waves, dragged beneath the waves with Jonah. And we hold our breath as Jonah waits for his death. And then all of a sudden, this, this shadow cuts across the silence of the deep. And before we even know it, Jonah has disappeared into the darkness. What in the world has happened? The text tells us a huge fish swallowed Jonah. But it's not just some natural phenomenon that has happened. Someone was hungry. God is behind this. The God who has been behind everything from the jump. From Jonah 1.1. The one who is behind the storm has now commanded another one of his creatures. And unlike the creature that bears his image, this creature obeys. Here we are reminded again that God commands all of creation. A miracle has happened. And it's not just because Jonah was swallowed up by a fish, but because Jonah is not dead. Did you catch that? By God's design, this predator has become this kind of submarine to carry Jonah while Jonah and his God have words. It is this verse that we often stumble over because we just have a bunch of questions of how. How, how in the world did this happen? We try to figure out which fish it was, how it could actually happen. These are important questions, but ultimately they are unanswerable because the text has decided not to answer it. There are questions we ask and we get caught up looking for an answer and we miss the God that these, these texts are pointing to. And let's be honest, this miracle is not even the hardest one in the Bible to believe. I mean, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Then this verse should not be a problem for you. Do you not believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Then this verse is not going to change your mind. This story is not about a big fish. As one writer talks about it, this fish just has a walk-on part. This, this story is not about a big fish. It is about a big God who is willing and able to pursue us with his mercy. The God who does the unthinkable on purpose. The God who did not forget Jonah and people of God. The God that does not forget you this morning. The God that wants to save you. The biggest surprise of this story is not the fish that God provided. It is that God showed mercy to Jonah. That Jonah does not get what he deserves. That God provided mercy to Jonah even before Jonah has had a chance to obey. Notice that. Jonah has not gone to Nineveh yet. Mercy precedes obedience. And we always got to get that calculus right. Because yes, mercy does inspire obedience. Obedience is not off the table, but mercy always comes first. And mercy will never forget you. Even if God in his mercy lets us go all the way down to the depths like he did with Jonah. You see, Jonah went down to Joppa. He went down into a ship, he went down into the depths of that ship, and now he is down at the depths of all creation. And that's where God is working. There is something in Jonah's heart, something that has gripped him so tightly that up until now has actually been dormant, has been asleep. While his life was good, he did not notice it, but has awakened when life got hard, when God called him to do something that went against what was in his heart. And God is going to use this time to open up Jonah's eyes and humble his heart. But I'm not going to step too far into Jonah 2. What I do want to say is that the truth that some people say does apply in this situation. Sometimes you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. So there he sits at rock bottom in the waiting room of God. Three days, three nights. A verse that actually was in the mouth of another prophet centuries later talking about the salvation that God will provide for his people made in his image. Matthew 12, 39 through 40, Jesus actually turns to a crowd that is, is demanding he prove he is who he says he is. And this is what he says. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, in the same way that Jonah was three days and three nights, the ancient equivalent of saying six feet under, the Son of Man, Jesus himself, was going to be three days and three nights in the earth. He would really die. He would really be buried. Why? Because he died for our sins. You see, like Jonah, he was sacrificed for others, but unlike Jonah, he was not sacrificed for his sins, he was sacrificed for our sins. 
And unlike Jonah, he really died. He really died and he really did come back to life. Jesus came into this world, lived the perfect life that we could not live, died the death that we should have died for our sin, and came back to life so that we would no longer have to live in sin. This is the gospel. God did the unthinkable and he died for us on purpose because he loved us and he loves us too much to let us get to Tarshish, to let us drown in our sins, to let us gasp for breath as sin floods our souls. And he shows us that love on the cross. You see, the cross is the ultimate proof that God is trustworthy, that God doesn't just sit on the sidelines, that he gets in the game and he deals with our suffering by taking on that suffering on himself, by sacrificing his life God has done the unthinkable in Jesus. He has provided a way of salvation for rebels like you and like me. And that means he is a God who can be trusted. And this morning, he is calling to you to trust him. He is calling to you with his mercy. And he is worthy of your trust and of your worship. This morning, would you trust in the God who did the unthinkable and died for you? Would you come to that God, even though you might think it, unthinkable that he would even call to you. We need to trust in the God who does the unthinkable on purpose, Christian or not. Sometimes we think we are so far gone that God doesn't want us. So far gone that God doesn't want us back. And what I want to tell you this morning is that mercy has been pursuing you all of your life. That's why you're here this morning. And mercy was pursuing you the moment you took a step in the wrong direction, away from God. God is a good father who pursues his children with his mercy. This morning, would you come to him, confess, repent, turn from the sin that is trying to kill you and come to the God that wants to give you life? Even if you are at rock bottom, God has not forgotten you. As I pray, my question is, Will you respond to the God who has done the unthinkable? Will you believe that he has done the unthinkable on purpose because he loves you and in this moment is calling to you? It's a hard question to answer, which is why I want to pray because as much as I can tell you what this Bible says, it's not until God by his spirit convinces you that this is what he actually says, that he actually loves you. Would you pray with me? Oh, great and merciful God, this morning we are, we are in awe of that love we are grateful for your mercy and we confess that we too often forget your goodness. Too often we struggle to trust your goodness when we can't see it. We confess and we repent and we pray that you would remind us how in Christ you have noticed us. How you, the creator over everything, the king who does as he pleases, has provided salvation for us in Jesus. We thank you for Jesus and we pray that you would help us to trust in you who, do, who does the unthinkable who does the unthinkable on purpose out of love and mercy and grace. And it is the name, in the name of the Jesus who shows us that mercy and grace that we pray. Amen.